0: Hello everyone, and welcome to a speculate discussion. We are going to be talking dramatization. I'm Mike and I'm joined by two of the lovely strange friends, Brandon and Valerie. Hello, Brandon and Valerie.
1: Hello, it is I again, Brandon. Hi, hi, it is Valerie.
0: So we were talking about some different options in terms of topics that we had for doing a discussion to go into the feed this week. And I, you know, I pitched three different things on the Discord. And uh, when it got to the topic of dramatization, Valerie said, I have notes. Uh, and therefore, Brandon and I became very excited. And so I'm going to immediately toss to Valerie and say, why is this a thing that you have notes about? <laughs>
2: Oh, gosh. Okay. So the thing is that dramatization versus exposition, which is usually like the flip side of it, right? There are two things that are held up against each other. And almost always, people get super salty about the use of exposition. There is just this intrinsic, like, trained anathema towards it that in a lot of ways, doesn't actually make sense because exposition is a really super vital part of fiction and also a vital part of a lot of T- TTRPG playing. Exposition is, you know, what happens in between stuff, more or less, but it's also backgrounds of an area. It's backgrounds of a character. It's just kind of all the stuff that doesn't happen on stage, so to speak. And and there's often a lot of that, right? And and that can be some of the most fun stuff in a game and in a story, But people just get really, really bitter. But I had to pull out my copy of Wonder Book to grab a Kim Stanley Robinson quote because he wrote an essay about exposition. And a thing that he said, which I think is super smart, is we read fiction's dramatized scenes to enter a flow state in which we seem to be living other people's lives. And that is sort of like very much also the essence of role-playing, right? Is that you are living your character's life. And so the impulse to dramatize stuff, like every little mundane thing is very strong because it is you being that person and you want to be that person. But a lot of times we want to be that person existing in reality plus it's reality but more cooler, better, more fun, more interesting with more power and agency or what have you everyone comes to these games with very different like desires and experiences and power fantasies and stuff like that but those but that that wanting to live other people's lives as if you were that, that people. What parts do we want to live? That's really kind of the foundational question of what do we dramatize versus what is exposition.
1: I think that comparison in particular is like one of the things that I think is most poignant about the conversation in general. It reminds me of something that kind of idly came up like backstage in Zoom while I was uh, chatting with the other players for the Eberron campaign that I play in on Greg's channel. A handful of folks, because they all already are working in the same shared world, essentially, and I'm trying not to give a, a great deal away, because I'm sure accidentally I'll end up giving up giving up some information that I'm not supposed to be privy to. But at one point, John Helfers, who is also uh, an editor for Catalyst Game Labs, was asking, what do you do in an audiobook when someone uses an acronym that... Uh, you're not sure the audience knows what the acronym is or means. And it got into this very interesting discussion about the fact that there are acronyms that we use right now in the real world where some of us will spell it out when we uh, announce it and some of us will say what that acronym has become in terms of a word and how we justify the ways in which we make those kinds of distinctions is a thing that happens in real life because we don't tend to think about it. But a story, in a lot of ways, in other problems than this, obviously runs the risk of how do we make normal information available to a reader who has no idea what it means? And I think that TTRPGs are particularly interesting in that regard because when you're playing, the assumption is that your character knows a thing, even if the player doesn't. And how do you bridge that gap as a player? And how do you bridge that gap further for an audience who is watching you play? And I think that the ways in which we kind of rationalize some of those decisions, even when there are things we don't know or aren't confident about, or a thing that doesn't exist that we are now making up the rules about in terms of how this thing operates as a, a social instrument, are really interesting to me, especially as a GM who often doesn't prep world building beforehand, and therefore we'll start learning things the same time players are learning it. So uh, those kinds of things are interesting to me as well.
0: Yeah. So the reason that I pitched dramatization as a topic is dramatization was like the big lesson in the first week when I was at Clarion West in 2007. And so I had written two manuscript drafts, but I had not yet written Anything that would would become published as a novel, right? I wrote Shield and Cro- the first draft of Shield and Crocus after being at Clarion West, and so in that first week at the workshop, Nancy Cress was the teacher, and dramatization was the big thing that she focused on. And before that, I didn't really have the language to describe that, like, basically a dial of how much are we paying attention? How much are we zoomed in? How much are we directing the reader's attention to things? How much are we kind of diving into this person's subjective experience to get the emotion and... I've kind of come back to dramatization again and again as a writer and as a GM. So one of the things that I've been actively working on becoming like developing as a skill as a GM is dramatization, whether that is going a bit deeper or going for a harder beat when I am describing a space. Often The dramatization that I'm doing is taking what a player has said their character is doing. And then once the dice have kind of weighed in, I kind of present that moment for the record with some kind of additional dramatization. I am like heightening or highlighting the skill with which they accomplished the thing or the complication that emerges as a result. Or I will kind of dramatize that moment and then extend or flow let that moment flow into another story beat right where a player does something we roll okay so you accomplish the thing but there's a consequence and so i describe the character accomplishing the thing and then i dramatize the the consequence or i might dramatize the next threat kind of using the language of like show them the barrel of the gun before you fire, right? Make a soft move of presenting imminent danger, telegraphing what is about to come. Do that before you follow through. And so dramatization for me when I'm GMing is about basically the volume of emotion or detail that I'm trying to bring to the scene as well as the volume of emotion that I'm trying to bring the player's to inspire in the players and or convey to the players and or an audience for actual play where it is that we are in the story right more dramatization probably means a slower pace it means more detail it means trying to convey the emotions of the moment but then there's also moments where it's useful to cut to the action right part of cutting to the action is exposition it's editing in your mind thinking what do i need to say and convey to connect the scene we're leaving to the scene we're in and there's a lot of really famous exposition in fiction for sure but then also i think some of what people think of when they think about actual play is not just the dramatization of like intense character rp it's also things like The exposition of famous GMs, like Matt Mercer is famous for his evocative exposition. And that's like, it's more like a continuation, a continuum of expository kind of terseness to like purple prose dramatization. It's not one or the other. It's some consciously decided upon version Where the GM is making a judgment call of, this is how far I have to go, this is how deep I have to go, this is how much I want to linger on this moment, to get across what's important in the scene.
2: Yeah. I'm going to talk a little about, because I think this leads into, in fiction, one way of conceptualizing scene work is through motivation reaction units. And just quick primer on motivation reaction units. Basically, the idea is you start with a motivation, which is some sort of external objective thing that happens. It's an action. It's a sensory experience. Just some sort of a thing happens. And that leads to the reaction for the character. And that's the internal subjective response to that motivation. And it happens immediately, happens instinctively. And typically it's broken down into three stages. You have the instantaneous feeling. Then you have the unconscious reflex just like just a reflexive response. And then you have the conscious rational action. And so it's interesting in role-playing to think about, you know, what your characters are doing in those moments when stuff happens to them. You have the feeling, you have the reflexive response, and then you have the conscious action response. And a lot of times I think this is something we do intuitively. We just we just do it when we're playing the game because that is how we think of this stuff. We have our feels and then we have our, our responses. But it's something that GMs can absolutely kind of encourage and emulate as well not just through the descriptions like you were just talking about of the thing that happens when a roll occurs but also encouraging the players to do it by modeling that action and just it helps you kind of get deeper in because one of the things about TTR RPGs that is that can be the same as but also very distinct from fiction fiction is POV right in fiction you typically have a single POV in any given scene whereas in a TTRPG you functionally have as many POVs as you have players and so where the GM is going to be stepping in to deliver whatever expository information or descriptions or whatever dramatization in the scene from what is essentially a sort of distant narrator POV or is attempting to be like close third person POV on that character sort of it's a very different way from what fiction can accomplish because POV is the filter the the lens the that that the character can see the world through and so the stuff that one character will notice in fiction is not going to be the same thing that another character will notice in fiction the words that they're going to use to explain things and and understand things not going to be the same in fiction but in TTRPG it's all sort of the GM voice and there's not a ton that you can necessarily do to play with that even within a scene Um, and so that's one of the kind of key differences I think between role playing and writing is that that POV that is is a very different animal so to speak.
1: So I find this utterly fascinating. I've never heard of motivation reaction units before And now I'm like, this is going to stick in my brain forever, and it's never going to be dislodged. But something very interesting kind of linked that back to what Mike said about uh, the the GM distinction between dramatization and exposition, which is one of the difficult things as a GM is also the obvious fact that you can be long-winded in either direction. And part of the reason you're supposed to cut to the action is not simply so players get an opportunity to make a decision, but simply so you keep actual player engagement going instead of them just essentially walking simulator experiencing your world. And I think one of the things that is particularly valuable about uh, how motivation is supposed to work in a TTRPG and why I think wide-range safety tool uh, objects like uh, lines and veils are obviously very important. Is because, secondarily, that is also an opportunity to know what your players are interested in. So you have triggers for your players. So when you cut to the action, the thing that you're doing is finding the thing that is either going to very deeply excite your player or the thing that is very narratively significant to that character... And pulling the the trigger on it immediately and ensuring that there is a time lock or a decision lock on that moment such that they have to do something in order to respond. One of the things I think I like about, because my style in particular as a GM is a lot slower than a lot of people's, partly because that's the way that I think and the way that I speak. But one of the things that I know about my style is... One of the ways that I respond in certain kinds of situations when I want to give players a moment of agency is I will open with very deep dramatization. I will give a room a lot of things happening and then I will just have a thing immediately trigger in that moment. Like move from characters just being silly and goofy to just... A bomb has gone off. A gun has gone off. Someone is falling out of a window. And then just let that be for a moment and wait to see how somebody replies to that. Because I like dramatization and I really like it when lots of things are happening in a scene. In part because the thing that I like about a lot of world building is giving characters moments where their innate personality feels like it's clashing with the rest of the game. And then go back to the moment of the game where players feel like they're responding suddenly to a thing that has broken the otherwise peaceful beat of the rest of the game. It's why I really enjoyed running Girl by Moonlight, for instance, because Girl by Moonlight's, like, operative, creative frame is a kind of dissonance between you are magical girls, you have been given this beautiful, revolutionary cute-themed power. This is how terrible the world is. And then I added the layer of every human you've ever met is either evil or stupid. And the moment that you meet a stupid person is also the moment where something terrible is about to happen. And then just letting you all make decisions about how to respond to those things. And I thought that like something about those kinds of... How those things mesh together that you can create... A world and a group of characters that are deeply evocative and sometimes contradictory with each other and contradictory with the theme. And all of that is part of the toolbox that they have as a GM to kind of buffer the space between players getting to see the world as it is and then immediately being triggered into an action is very fun for me. So I just wanted to say that that that, that reminded me that uh, that I'm an evil person. So thank you very much for that.
0: <laughs> when you're describing that, Brandon, I was reminded of like something that makes a huge difference to me as a player when I am in specifically like combat oriented games. And so like I'm playing a fair amount of D and D Five E, which is tends to be pretty combat focused. Is where a lot of the rules are are and. You know, that's just where it ends up being a lot of the time. And I'm playing in a few different games, or I guess two now, I used to be three. One of them is notably more consistently combat-focused, and the other one is kind of more up and down about it. And something that I, I notice in the more combat-focused one is that the GM is doing something kind of like what I do when I'm GMing and doing dramatization, which is making sure that every attack that lands, every spell that goes off, gets a moment in the spotlight, right? And that he uses dramatization as a way to make the characters feel competent and to make the enemies feel threatening. Because, you know, and this is, I think, especially the case in actual play, but for me, it is still very much the case in a home game. If your combat goes okay i'm gonna roll to hit with my sword i got a 17 does that hit okay cool i do 12 damage and then the gm goes okay cool 12 damage Valerie, you're next what happened in the fiction all i know is that i swung my sword and it did 12 damage i don't know what 12 damage means to this enemy but if i say um and actually i think there's there's um there's different options here right because you can do dramatization at the beginning as a player but then you can feel bad when you miss right i describe this awesome thing that i do and i then i roll a 2 and it fails and i feel bad or do i just say i'm going to attack and then i roll and then i let the dice tell me whether i should do a cool description and like there's a couple of different options there i kind of do a little bit of both what the gm does is whenever enemies are attacking or whenever we land those hits he makes sure to kind of try to go for the, like the visceral nature of combat cuz we're playing like a dark fantasy game and the stakes are high and so he describes the 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 enemies snarling and he describes the powerful blows like and the knockback that they do and so the gm is spending the time and the energy putting the energy into the game to try to Make sure that the stakes and the emotion of the scene hit for us, and so that it reads as something more than just kind of rote choreography. Because in a game with a lot of combat, if you don't take the time for dramatization, and this is an, this is my aesthetic preference. For me, a combat scene that does not take a little bit of extra time here and there, and then sometimes a bit more time, to dramatize and kind of enrich the fiction so that the combat, the mechanics of the combat, then help us create these emotionally packed moments where dramatization suggests and creates the contours and the emotional landscape of that scene. If you don't have that, you're just rolling dice. It's just a miniatures combat game for me. And so I need dramatization in a game when combat matters.
1: You reminded me of an an observation that I made a while ago about actual play as a medium uh, in itself, which is the average individual session of an actual play is longer and slower than a movie, but it is also shorter and yet somehow still longer uh, in terms of passage of time than the average chapter of a book that will take the exact same action in it. Mm. And one of the reasons why I note that is you when you brought up the DND d five e I always personally find it so very curious that the game goes out of its way to tell us that a round of action, a turn is six seconds long, and it needs to make sense in one 's brain because we 're also interpreting the action economy in time but Notwithstanding the fact that it means that some people are capable of running ungodly fast and jumping at ho- and like go- a high speed and all those kinds of things. One of the things that interestingly comes out of that is if you were to reenact the average, even some of the best fights that you've ever gotten out of a D&D game in its actual time frame, what you will see is Lots of uh, rogues and barbarians charging at their enemies uh, at a speed that is somewhat unfathomable to you, pummeling their enemies immediately, and the fight is done in a minute and a half. uh, If it even lasts that long. But in a novel, if a fight is taking place, when someone has fired a singular round from a handgun in like a pulp mystery novel... That chapter is spent dwelling on what it looks and feels like when that bullet leaves the chamber, what it feels like when the person pulled the trigger. Did they want to kill this person? Did they not want to kill this person? The bullet misses. How do they feel about the fact that they miss? They now have to duck into a corner so they don't get shot and reload. Are they nervous? Do we get to observe the look and feel of this? That's like one paragraph, a paragraph and a half. Of what just uh, of what in real time is just like a fraction of seconds, and the thing that I value about dramatization in in TTRPG is that it's the opportunity for the GM will always take these opportunities because he's the GM. It's our job to lavish world building, but it's also an opportunity for players to go. Even though I know that this moment is taking mere seconds, I am now expressing the feelings that i have in this beat because this is the only medium in which it would matter otherwise and a lot of that is just kind of obvious anyway a lot of that is just accidentally the consequences of rolling dice as well because if you describe a beautiful action roll and fail then one of the other things that you get to do is dramatize the act of, I think I'm so cool right now. Oh wait, I slipped on a banana peel and I'll never get to do anything for another six seconds. But if you wait to, if you wait for the die to tell you what happens in this scene, this is also your opportunity to dramatize. Am I really competent in this moment? Do I think that I'm competent in this moment? If I entered the scene feeling incompetent and I just did a nat 20 action, Is this a fluke for me? Or have have I discovered something about my skill? And all these kinds of things that are really powerful moments to learn more about your character in this specific situation that only occurs because combat has taken place. And there are lots of other specific moments like specific exploration moments in D&D as well, where uh, if you were using or Orca- Arcana or Survival in order to determine the circumstances that you're in, or if you're trying to pick a lock or uh, lie to somebody, you are having all these feelings about the fact that you have performed this action. And even though the action itself is mere beats, and in a movie we'd never get an opportunity to see what your reaction to this thing is, a TTRPG is the closest to a novel in that... You are given this moment, however briefly, to actually express feeling about that moment.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of movies do attempt to sort of mimic interiority in ways. I, we can't all be David Lynch's Dune. you are literally getting <laughs> people's thoughts. <laughs> yeah, and look how that turned out. But somewhere my husband is rolling over in his not grave, his futon. I don't know. Anyway, so, but like, th- there is a lot you can do then in a tabletop game. That you can do in a book as well, but that you can't do in a film necessarily. And there are ways of sort of working through it, working around it. And in terms of like the differentiation between conflict and other stuff, I mean, another conceptualization of how a scene plays out in a book is that you have characters have a goal. They have options to choose from there's they choose an option there's some sort of conflict that happens and then you have the outcome basically and so like that is just again a very simplistic generalized way of conceiving of a particular kind of scene but you don't always have to have conflict and that is something that happens in ttrpgs as well like you were just saying with the lock picking thing that's not really it's not conflict it's, it's an exertion of skill it's you're trying to accomplish a thing and seeing how that plays out and In terms of fictional stuff and in TTRPGs, a lot of times instead of conflict what you have is revelation, you have information gathering, so to speak, and you have sort of um, contests of wills in a way where you have different people with different goals, different motivations, different plans, and they are potentially trying to accomplish things that are at odds with each other, or one of them is simply trying to get information out of the other person who is trying to conceal that information. Or you're just going through different activities that then lead to some sort of revelation in a sort of like maybe a Kisho Tenketsu sort of approach to having the things happen where it's not it's not that there's conflict, it's that choices are being made. Those choices lead to something and then that something leads to something else. And you're just doing that over and over and over again. And the dice mechanic can be what happens after you make that choice and it, I think in some ways, because of the luck factor intrinsic in Rolling Dice, it is trying to imitate the luck of life. And I'm just... You think about... I'm walking down the street and anything could happen. A piano could fall out of a window and land on me. Chances are it won't. But but I think that's why some games are so much more satisfying in how they approach this particular mechanic. Because if you have a character who is an extremely competent person and then they roll a two then they've just hecked up something that, in theory, they're really, really good at and they shouldn't be able to lose that. And I think that some GMs work around that by just being like, no, you succeed. It's just an automatic success because this is something you clearly would be able to do. But... Sort of the way like Brandon was talking about, you know, oh, they slipped on a banana peel or whatever. There are are opportunities in those failures to find really funny or dramatic or interesting, you know, moments that you can then explore. Because if things just go smoothly in the entire encounter, then it potentially is just not that interesting. Sometimes we do love to see competence and we do love to see John Wick just blow his way through a you know, 20 guys, but John Wick also got shot, stabbed, falls out of buildings. Like we see him get hurt. And that was something that I remember learning in stage combat that it's it's one thing to sell the attack but the person who's getting hit has to sell it too and in a way they're way more important than the person who is attacking because if the person John Wick punches doesn't fly backwards into the wall if the person he shoots doesn't jerk and land on the ground then what happened nothing it it feels it feels fake it feels like it doesn't matter
0: this makes me think about wrestling professional wrestling right uh, cuz there's the concept of the no sell because the the com- the the combatants in professional wrestling match are telling a story together right they are telling a story through violence and through through the motion of bodies and if you have like the big fighter and the little fighter and the and the big fighter hits the little fighter with a punch the little fighter is going to sell the crap out of it because that's the story that we're telling here that dramatization of the moment is really powerful and like a lot of times the GM is going to be the other person in that conversation, right? Unless you're in a, like a PvP kind of game that wh- whatever is happening, the GM may have an opportunity to like dial up or dial down what's happening. The thing that came to mind for me with the like, what happens when you roll a two is there's like, oh, all of the different ways that a GM can help make something make sense. Because maybe the player... Is really upset about it. And like they're not gonna, they're not gonna kind of give their own evaluation of like, oh, maybe it doesn't work because I X, right? Sometimes a player will have their own idea of why something failed. Sometimes the GM might come up with like a tonally appropriate thing. The thing that came to mind to me that I now want to try to do is okay, you rolled a two when you're attacking with the sword, the sword that has been with you since the beginning of you know, X, Y, Z. And if I know as the GM that if I break this sword, that player is not going to like be really ticked off, I can say, okay, you dodge around several other enemies, you raise your sword and you bring it down in, you know, in a, uh, a cutting blow that you've thrown a thousand times. Six weeks ago, you threw the same blow against... And then I I draw back in the campaign. And I talk about this enemy who kind of raised their blade. And, you know, you powered through the blow. But what you didn't realize in the moment is that it caused the tiniest of fractures in the blade. And for six weeks, you've been using it and using it. And it's a sturdy blade. It has served you well. But in this moment, you hit... The you, know, you hit the bandit's blade at exactly the wrong location and your sword shatters. That's not about the, the fighter not being a good fighter. That is about the accumulation of unfortunate circumstances creating a terrible failure where the sword failed you. You didn't fail to be a fighter there, right? But am I as the GM going to spend 30 seconds doing that in this fight? Is it the right time to really slow down and make a feast out of a two? Or does it make more sense to come up with the five to 10 second explanation of why something doesn't function instead of the 30 to 60 second version where I'm retroactively creating a story arc for a sword? And that's a choice of, that's an editorial choice as the GM.
2: And it has to just kind of happen naturally, I think, in context. Because, first of all, every group of players is different. So every group of players is going to intrinsically have more or less interest in experiencing a moment like that. And every group of players is going to have also, honestly, a mood. Everybody has moods. It's life. People have have a good days, bad days, days where they're really invested in something, days where they're not. And so reading the room is really kind of part of it and also open lines of communication with players to determine, all right, what kind of mood are you in today? And like you said, it's like, if I break this sword, is this player going to be super upset? Or are they just going to be like, oh no, my sword, and kind of roll with it and you know, pull their dagger out or whatever. Like, As GMs, you are the ones who are figuring this out. You are the ones who are keeping an eye on your players and listening to them and interacting with them and knowing them uh, so that you can react that way. And you can also, as we said before, encourage your players to do the thing such that even if you're not the one coming up with this elaborate backstory, if you have either done it before as you're modeling that behavior for the players so that they know they can do the thing, uh, or if they come up with on their own that moment where they're just like, oh, I'm going to make this real serious or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this real ridiculous or whatever, and then letting them lean in. It can be just an extra level of fun for, for people, depending on the kind of the mood that they're in and, and how they feel like reacting to that, too.
0: Yeah, a great tool that I've picked up is when you're not the principal actor in a, in a moment, but you have a really cool idea, is letting whoever is speaking speak and then say, hey, I have an idea. Can I add a detail? And then the, another player can contribute to dramatization in that moment.
1: I think a lot about improv. I think as more people uh, have had the professional and academic conversation about how TTRPG plays a kind of dramaturgy, I think that the conversation about how improv comes into play in the way that we engage as players and between players and GMs has become increasingly more important. And one of the things that comes to mind as a result is, I think a lot of the time, GMs, it is easy for a GM to assume in a session that their job is to be a kind of umpire for the world, when their job is supposed to be a partner for the main character in the scene. And I think that when he, like as uh Valerie was saying, one of the things that is valuable in that attempt is when you when you when a player is uh, taking charge in a particular scene to be as aware as possible about what the tone of the scene is what you what that player's and what that character's interests and values are in that moment, and uh trying to lean into those elements as of, as much and as often as possible in that scene so it doesn't feel like they have telegraphed that they want to do a thing or seeking a certain kind of consequence for their action and then it feels like what happens afterward either forgets that intention or is totally non sequitur to that intention I've spoken about uh, several times in other circumstances about how some of the least rewarding experiences that I've had as a player is when I felt like I was obviously telegraphing to the GM. Yes, I know that this has happened. So now I want the consequence of this thing to be leaning a certain way. I want my death to have this kind of value. I want this failure to have this certain kind of value. And then the GM responds to that by going, well, here's this other... This other thing instead that would have been cool, but is not the thing that I wanted in this moment. And instead it feels like you just kind of took my story from me. It feels like the the analogy is you're reading a fairy tale and in the middle of the fairy tale, your big brother grabs the book from you, tears the next page out and starts writing something else in the margin of the page after it and tells you, well, this is how that story ends that's not the story that i came here to, to read and i feel like more gms and i I'm, i again i say this acknowledging that i think that the conversation about ttrpgs has evolved to the point where this is something that more players are actively going out of their way to increase their skill in like everyone's gaining xp in that particular skill but improv in particular and in, patac- in, in particular the improvisational acknowledgement that you are following up from someone else that you're yes ending a particular kind of decision or a certain kind of atmosphere is very very valuable in those kinds of moments because it ensures that even when the dice have made a decision for the story everybody's still on the same page about the things that they want
2: I think, I think one of the things that you both do pretty well a lot is let us as players decide what happens. And I think that that is one of the, the best ways to deal with a situation like that is that as GM, you can finesse whatever it is that the player wants so that it makes sense. But letting the player sort of take the lead on right. the outcome, I think, is a really good way to
0: handle that. A move that has become one of my favorite moves is to hard frame a moment that both puts a player on the spot and gives them the spotlight. In an interview or like a conversation that I was having at New Jersey Web Fest, I mentioned a moment from the first session of Valoword where I said, Zelfa, how is it that you noticed the sniper on the third floor? And so I am expositing. I am establishing that there is a sniper on the third floor. I am establishing that Zelfa has spotted them. And so I have, I have already indicated Zelfa's competence or made room for Brandon to assume Zelfa's comf- uh, competence and then build the scene and backfill the justification and the process. I have not gotten pushback on that yet from players, even though I know in the moment that I'm putting them on the spot. And so I will toss to Brandon, how, did those, how, do, how do you feel about those?
1: I adore that scene, you know, in part because like, because you're doing another version of a thing that I like to do in my games as well, but you are a great deal more forward about leaning on the fact that it doesn't just happen, but a player sees it before it's happening, which is always very cool. But part of the reason why I like those kind of moments in particular is it puts someone on the spot to respond to a thing. But it also ensures that the person who is on this spot is a person who is capable of responding or like gives them an opportunity to find what is the most resourceful tool for that thing while still acknowledging that it has come out of nowhere. Because the thing that I like about that scene is we're at a party. Everything is low stakes. I am literally talking to the youngest child of our house in this moment and we're having this really touching, really heartfelt moment. And then you tell me there's a sniper and I'm supposed to reply? I'm like, okay, cool, I guess. I guess I need to think on the spot now. And uh, it's also very rewarding to be put in that position because after that initial shock is the moment where we as players go, well, this is a thing that we are aware of. This is a thing that we've trained for. We have resources as characters. And then the game also goes you as characters have all of these options at your disposal, especially when you're playing a Forge in the Dark game. The value of flashbacks is always very useful in this moment uh, because it means that I'm not just going, oh my god, there's a sniper at the window, and then waiting for more calamity to take place before I reply. You're asking me because... I am expected to take action in this moment and the action that I can take is valuable. So whatever I do in that moment, even if I decided in that moment I, I, to, to perform incompetence, you have given me that opportunity because you trust whatever narrative decision I'm going to make next, which is an opportunity for me to figure out, well, what is the kind of story that I want to tell about my character? And that's really fulfilling in that moment to go... I have been trusted with this beat. I am going to do the thing that I think is going to reward that same kind of energy. Which is why I like that immediately afterwards we were like, well, we have security processes in place. We're going to enact those security processes such that we eliminate all of our enemies bloodily. Not because we're vicious people, but because you shouldn't have come to the most armed house... On uh, Vala Island, decide that you want to challenge them in combat surreptitiously. This is dishonorable. We now have to delete you. And then we did. So that was fun.
0: Another way that I use a move like that, but it's not exactly the same one, is when I am kicking off or wrapping up a scene. And usually the wrap up is like, we're doing the denouement now, where I will go around the table and basically give every player character a beat of telling the story of the scene so in a home game that i ran we got to kind of the finale like okay this is the last mission this is we're ending the campaign and getting to the point of giving every player a chance to be the author of the scene for a moment and tell like basically highlight spotlight reveal um, or dramatize their character in that moment in some way that way they want to do that. How do you want to do this? The critical role line from from Matt Mercer that has become like famous and and really iconic throughout the hobby because of Critical Role's popularity. How do you want to do this? Is that move in a very like limited fashion? Right. We then tend to get like the cinematic kill, but it is one player, one collaborator looking to another collaborator and handing over the pen or the microphone to let somebody else dramatize the moment. And I'm very excited that we have a lot of different ways in which people are practicing that idea of sharing the mic or kind of handing over authority in the moment so that someone else gets the f- the opportunity, the fun to play with that tool set of dramatization.
2: Yeah, because again, it does it comes back to what are the parts that of other people's lives that you want to live? What are the things that you as a player want to do? What are you interested in exploring, enacting, in, in feeling sort of cathartically through the game that you're playing? And all of those different explorations are are valid. And validating them by giving the mic, like you said, to each of these different players is, is really great. It's a great experience. It's what we're playing the game for, honestly, in, in so many ways. We, we want to be the character on some level, and we want to do the things the character would do and slip into, into the role of them and, and their
0: lives. So, Valerie, can I put you on the spot for a moment to share a story that I know is a cool story? B. In Fractal Spire, you talked about um, like, and this is kind of player level conversation of like, not being as much of like an improvisational player. And so I know that you prepared interesting stuff and dramatization that you then deployed that blew all of our minds in that finale. Um, so I'd love to, to ask that you talk about that in terms of dramatization, if that's cool.
2: Yeah, and so what's what's the thing is that as we've talked about, like you can't know exactly what you want to do in any given moment in an RPG because first of all, you're playing with other characters, right? And so each character is is played by a person, whether it be the GM or another player, and those characters have free will within the context of the game. They have the ability to do a thing that maybe doesn't align with whatever you thought was going to happen or you know they were going to do. In fiction, you have full control, right? You you are the author of the thing. You can make the characters do whatever you feel like having them do. You can completely script the arc of the emotion uh, from start to finish and, and go with it that way. But as a player, you're working with other people. And so when I put that that together. I actually wrote multiple versions of that because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what that end game was going to look like. I didn't know where the different characters were going to be in the scene. I didn't know exactly how it was going to play out. And so I had several ideas of what I thought would be cool for that moment when Nina finally, you know, changed forms. And basically I decided when it happened, which of those options I was going to go with based on what was occurring in the scene, what had happened to the other characters, and therefore like kind of what Nina was called to do in that moment. And I think that as a person who preps a lot of stuff, I had multiple things prepped, but you still have to go with what works in in the moment. You have to go with what feels right, with what fits with the scene. And it is that yes and. It is that like everyone is rowing in the same boat and you kind of want to be rowing in the same direction as opposed to trying to pull the scene in different directions you want to contribute to the emotional arc of the scene rather than shattering it necessarily
0: so and do you remember what part beat tone or vibe in the scene like you were directly reacting to in the choice that you made like did was there a moment where you went we're doing this one Yes. And
2: it was, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact thing that happened, but I knew that based on what was occurring to everyone and what the bad guy was doing and monologuing about, I knew that what I wanted to happen to Nina was a sacrifice, which is essentially the way that that move functioned in Girl by Moonlight is for that that particular uh, character um, playset to transcend there has to be essentially a sacrifice. She has to try to save someone else at risk of her own uh, uh, life, basically. And and the the actual like description of it is is what it is. Can't remember off the top of my head. But but in that moment, like I knew that what I wanted her to do was disappear. And part of it was because as a character. In some ways, she has been disappearing the whole game. She, as a character, was always not transcending. She had no powers. There was really not much that she could contribute a lot. And so she was Several often... Several seconds
1: in a row uh, yes. you know, would literally fall in a hole.
2: Yeah, and, and she was also kind of a comic relief character as I was playing her. She was sort of like, maybe not the Scooby or... Shaggy, but like you know, she she was there and she was doing her best, and she was a cinnamon roll, and and so I knew that what I wanted to happen was just her absence, her her complete profound disappearance, and the the outcome of that. And so because of that, I chose the moves that that would then allow her to magically reappear, but powerful. One of the I know one of the other versions that I wrote, she actually would be a giant woman. <laughs> And so it would be like, not that she disappeared, but that she just grew to profound size. And so that was not something that worked in the scene. So I didn't do it. But it was definitely uh, the disappearing act and the reappearing was what felt correct.
1: So I like this in part because I either totally forgot, like we had this conversation and I totally forgot or I did not know. That that was prepped. I highly suspected that it was, but I was like, I'm not sure. Is this a thing that's happening live? But one of the things that I like about how that manifested is every other character in Fractal Spire is in a situation that they do not like and do not want. And hate that they've been uh, forced to, uh, to make a decision, which is like a purposeful decision that we made in the writer's room when we were having this, this conversation. And obviously uh, Girl by Moonlight feeds into that a lot, but I was drawing very strongly on stuff like Madoka Magica and this like weight of sacrifice being put in a position where you have to make a no-win decision, knowing that the consequences of not making it would be dire. And that the narrative consequence of that, knowing that Nina hadn't tran- would not transform for most of the series, is Nina is watching all of uh, her friends suffer and have these like long pangs of frustration and fear and anger and even a little bit of guilt about being put in this situation uh, the person who brought you all together is mean and vindictive and manipulative and every other person that you meet is pure evil except for one person who is just an absolute fool well two people if you also count dice and the fact that you personally made the decision, which we hadn't guided, I hadn't given you any notes on this regard. But the fact that you leaned into, therefore, not just performing somebody who has gone from being being and feeling invisible to being and feeling hyper-visible. But going from somebody who's watching other people who have been given the, the ability to transcend hate it and fear it and be frustrated by it to someone who does in fact find something radical and empowering about doing this thing, even though this decision was made sacrificially was actually really cool to me. And that like, it felt, especially because we hadn't telegraphed those things, like you were paying back a thing that I gave you that I was obviously telegraphing This is a moment for anybody to have conversations about what is the thing that they actually want. And Nina goes, I want to transcend. Transcendence still sucks, and this is all very not ideal. But I'm not going to make this suck for me, and you can't stop me. That was really rad. And I loved it a lot.
2: Yeah. And I think also what was great is that, again, as GM and player, we had had many conversations throughout the course of the game about when she would transcend. And I was very kind of, I don't want to say firm, but I knew that I wanted it to be as late game as possible for all of these reasons that we discussed, is that it was part of her character arc as a character, is that if she transcends too early then it does take away some of the emotional impact of it that fact of who her character is and how her character is going to come to come into her you know full powers because it is a game where like again that particular play play set the playbook it is a a setting that the transcended version of each character is not just intended to be a, v- a better version of themselves it is in fact intended to be sort of an alien entity that is potentially an aspect of themselves but is in some ways just very distinct and separate and i i wanted for nina to have still that kind of little voice inside of her that is like but what if what if we did it like this and then lean into sort of the strength of that in ways that like you said other characters had just profoundly adversarial relationships sometimes with their transcendent self and uh, if not fearful relationships or sort of just awkward relationships so there was an entire gamut of things and because of who nina was i wanted to be the part of it that it was still very alien to her but it was in some ways, a better version of herself.
1: Yeah. Like, I think, in a lot of ways, very uh, obviously, because we did have some conversations about every character's avatars, the way that we kind of played with and around the assumptions that the actual series playbook uh, makes about the avatar is, yes, these are parts of you that are strange and somewhat alienating from you. But not because they're not something that you were aware of or acknowledged as a part of yourself. And not not even necessarily because it's a part that you're ashamed of, but just, if you were this person all the time, your life would obviously be much harder than it already is. And I think the fact that you decided to lean into, well, I want to be someone who is hyper-visible, not because I enjoy hypervisibility, visibility but because there is... An obvious foil to constantly being overlooked, constantly being ignored, constantly not being in a position of obvious power in this moment. That I'd rather have it and do something radical with it than not have it, which I thought was really cool.
0: I'm glad that we got to talk more about that moment because it's one of my favorite moments from that series. And I think a great demonstration of the different tools that you can bring to the table Um, when you're playing a TTRPG, right? A lot of people talk a lot about the value of kind of the emergent and the improvisational, but everybody brings different skills to the table. And I think that it was a really smart choice that you did, Valerie, in terms of knowing how you relate to to role-playing and wanting to have the material to make a moment land. With the, the weight that we all wanted it to do, and then doing so in a way where you had that flexibility and could adjust in the moment so you were combining improvisation and preparation, which is something that I think is very common and a great skill for GMs to have, but then also something that players can bring to the table where you can find a medium ground between what you are expecting and hoping for from the game and what is happening in the moment so that you can kind of go with the flow while still getting to kind of have your moment in, you know, any given time. Something that we can't really get to because it's not in uh, in our experience, but I'm really curious about is the topic of dramatization in post-production. Basically adding or cutting away from dramatization in editing of an actual play after you do it right you you do the session and then afterward you use post-production elements to dial up a scene or you cut a scene in a way that casually pulls away from like oh this dramatization didn't actually go anywhere and so it's not important in the scene doing that type of editing but maybe In a year from now, we will have gotten to do other things. I think this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much to uh, Valerie and Brandon for your thoughts. Thank you, Valerie, for bringing uh, all of your notes and that great quote to kind of help frame the conversation. Uh, And it was fun to get to talk about all the different ways that we use dramatization. And now I'm going to ask Valerie and then Brandon to remind us uh, where we can find your work and where we can find you on the internet.
2: You can find me online on my website at ValerieValdez.com. That is Valdez with an S, not with a Z. You can still find me on the site formerly known as Twitter, as well as on Blue Sky. Same thing, Valerie Valdez. And if you are into Magic the Gathering, you can read the new Ixalan story arc that just came out, written by yours truly. Does Valerie write fantasy? Why, yes, she does. Sometimes.
1: I'm so happy that you're writing for Ixalan. There are dinosaurs. It's so rad. Dinosaurs are great. And mushrooms. Are you into mushrooms? I hope so. As for me, you can find me almost everywhere on the internet at The Rising Tides. That's T I T H E S. Um, i also have a web- i also have a website that is also my newsletter at X Y Z, and i have an H.io page the, the rising tides where you can buy some of the things that i have made including the fugitive crew sheet for blades in the dark which we used when we played descended seal so if you want to Play people who are not criminals, definitely not criminals, have never committed a crime a day in your life. You can do that in Blades in the Dark, which is weird, but also very fun. So yeah.
0: All right. And I am Mike. I write as Michael R. Underwood. You can find the, um, all of the series that I do at various uh, on various retailers. I have the Geeky Urban Fantasy series that starts with Geekomancy. I have uh, Dimension Hoppings, Story heists in genre knots. I am getting into game design and game writing. You can pick up my wacky Star Trek pastiche RPG, The Only Logical Solution is Hijinks, at michaelrunderwood.itch.io. Um, and I'm going to be doing more game things in the future. I will also remind you, folks that are watching or listening, that Speculate is having our second annual fundraiser marathon on Saturday, November 11th, kicking off at about noon. And Brandon, Greg, and I have been doing lots of plotty fingers, figuring out exactly what types of and in what forms we're going to do awesome, amazing things to get people excited about the things that we're doing at Speculate and to see if we are able to gather the kind of financial support and pledges on Patreon and things like that that will allow us to continue making amazing shows like Fractal Spire, The Case of the Cindered Seal, Valward and more things coming in the future. You can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky at Mike R. Underwood, And I stream talking about video games and or RPGs at twitch.tv slash TurboTango uh, here and there. And uh, you can find the YouTubes of that over at youtube.com slash at Mike Underwood. They added the like, you can have your name at thing. It's actually really handy because it used to be like, you have to have this many followers and then you get a special name, whatever. Uh, anyway, this has been great. Thank you so much to everyone who was here in the call right now. Thanks to the folks who are watching and listening. And we will see you all again soon. Take care.
1: The theme music for Speculate is Yellow Wood by Greg's band, The Road. Find out more at www.thebandtheroad.com. Hi, everyone. If you've enjoyed what we've been doing here on Speculate and you've been thinking to yourself, where can I get more role-playing in my life? Can I recommend Arvaneleron.com? A-R-V-A-N-E-L-E-R-O-N dot where you can check out the Curse of Strahd podcast. This, set in the world of Ravenloft, is a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition campaign which has been running for a long time with a similar group of players and which has been both a lot of fun and I think you will find enjoyable. If you like it, please let us know both there